Alright, so this evening we will be in Numbers chapter 20, uh, a very important chapter uh, here in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Bible, Numbers being of course the fourth of them. There are four significant things that happen in Numbers 20. The first is the death of Miriam. The second is the uh, event, uh, the waters coming forth from the rock at Mirabah. Uh, the third one being an interaction between the Israelites and the Edomites. And the fourth one being the death of Aaron, Moses' brother. And um, just as a reminder, going back all the way to the introduction to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20 begins the 40th year of this generation of Israelites in the wilderness. Okay, So everything that happens and everything that we read between Numbers chapter 20 and the end of the book of Deuteronomy happens in the 40th year of the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Okay, So that's a pretty lengthy portion of of the Bible, so Numbers 20 through Numbers 36, and then the entire book of Deuteronomy happening in the span of one year. And here in Numbers chapter 20 is the beginning, as we will see in verse 1. <coughs> then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, that is, of the 40th year in the wilderness. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. Okay, so just one verse here given to the death of Miriam, Moses' older sister. We know from the beginning of the book of Exodus that Miriam was already uh, several years old or more even um, when Moses was born. And here she is at the beginning of the 40th year uh, dying and so not able to pass into the promised land. She uh, is falling now uh, with the rest of this generation of Israelites, save Joshua and Caleb. Verse 2. And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So uh, as we set up this, this uh, second event here in Numbers chapter 20, we see again the Israelites grumbling about the lack of water. This is obviously not the first time they have done so. Um, and, and I note here that uh, we don't have any record of Moses responding to the Israelites in, in this particular event. Moses simply turns, it says, verse 6, came from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting, <clears throat> and he and Aaron fall on their faces before Yahweh the Lord. 
Verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, (coughs) Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, so now Moses speaks, verse 10. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Alright, so these uh, few verses here, six verses or so, verses 8 through 13, are very important verses. I will come back to them at the end. Let me touch upon upon them uh, very briefly here in this uh, first time through. So, um, as I mentioned all the way back at the beginning, the introduction to the book of Numbers, um, there are many parallels between the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus. So, this, uh, as as you've been following along over the past few years, as we've been uh, moving through the uh, the Pentateuch here, uh, you may remember a similar episode to this all the way back in Exodus chapter 17. So if you would go back there, I want you to see because the, the differences between the event in Exodus and in Numbers are significant and they will be significant uh, near the end of the discussion this evening. So, back in Exodus chapter 17, of course, this is the Israelites uh, approaching Mount Sinai. This is before the book of the covenant. Um, And so, there's this episode where uh, all the congregation, Exodus 17 verse 1, all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. You can see here, the people quarreled with Moses and and said, give us water that we may drink. That word um, quarreled there is exactly the same Hebrew word as the word in Numbers chapter 20, verse 3, that is translated contended. So, in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, they quarreled with Moses and demanded water. And of course, in verse 3 of Exodus 17, they grumbled against Moses. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is the same um, grumbling that we see in Numbers chapter 20. Moses, verse 4, cries out to the Lord Yahweh, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Verse 5, 
of Exodus 17, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, verse 6 of Exodus 17, very important, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. So in the account, in Exodus chapter 17, specifically verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, commands Moses to strike the rock, and the rock, upon being struck, will then issue forth water. And at that time, we also then went to 1 Corinthians 10, and Paul says that the rock that brought forth water was Christ. Right? And I'm not going to go back through that whole episode again. You can go back and listen to that um, teaching from Exodus 17 to talk about the time when the Lord commanded Moses to strike the rock. Here, if you go back to Numbers chapter 20, verse 8 specifically, Yahweh speaking to Moses says, Take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. Okay? And so there are many comparisons and parallels between the episode in Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20. But there's a significant difference. In Exodus 17, Moses was commanded to strike the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses is commanded to speak to the rock. Now, in Numbers, or I'm sorry, in Exodus 17, Moses indeed strikes the rock and water issues forth. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses again strikes the rock. And not only that, but he strikes it twice. We see that in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11. So, Numbers 20, 11, Moses lifts up his hand he strikes the rock twice, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Verse 12 of Numbers chapter 20. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And so we see here that because Moses strikes the rock in Numbers chapter 20, instead of merely speaking to the rock, this is clear evidence of Moses' disobedience. You see that in verse 12? Because you have not believed me. So Moses disobeys the Lord. And he does so in a very public way, in front of the congregation of Israel. And you see that in verse 12 as well. The Lord Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. So it's very important to God here that Moses actually disobeys the command of the Lord. And he does so very publicly. And the reason why I want to point that out is because we have seen before that Moses actually has a back and forth with the Lord. So, for example, if you go back just to Numbers chapter 11, Numbers 11, Moses has a back and forth 
even manifesting unbelief with Yahweh. Okay, Numbers 11, this is the episode with the quail, the meat to eat, right? And specifically, if you look at verse 21, after God says he's going to send quail, meat, right, for an entire month for all of the Israelites, verse 21 of Numbers 11, but Moses said to Yahweh, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, yet you have said I will give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Verse 23, and Yahweh said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And so we have seen manifestations, periodic manifestations of Moses' unbelief before. But in this particular case, Numbers chapter 20, Moses' unbelief is public. And it's so public that the Lord takes it, in this particular case, as Moses treating him the Lord, as not holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. And the consequences of Moses' disobedience is that Moses is now excluded from the land of Canaan. And I would also note here that this is not just a um, evidence of Moses' unbelief and disobedience in the sight of all Israel, but it's clearly a demonstration of Moses' anger, which we have also seen before, just as a reminder, right, when in Exodus chapter 32, in the incident with the golden calf, as Moses and Joshua come down the mountain, Moses is angry with the Israelites, and he subsequently breaks the first tablets of the Ten Commandments such that they need to be replaced. So this is clearly not the first time we have seen Moses' anger and an episode of Moses' unbelief. We will come back to this. Verse 13. Those were the waters of Mirabah. Mirabah means contention because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. That's the second episode. The third episode begins in verse 14. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We shall not pass through field or through vineyard. We shall not even drink water from a well. We shall go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left, until we pass through your territory. Verse 18, Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, lest I come out with the sword against you. Verse 19, Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We shall go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. 
Verse 20, But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom. So the third episode here is this interaction between the Israelites and the Edomites. So you all know, as you've been following along here in this study, that the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, who are literally the brothers of the Israelites. You see that in verse 14 from Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said. So going all the way back to Isaac, his two sons were Esau and Jacob. Right? Of course, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, and the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel in Genesis chapter 32. The land of Edom is east of the Negev, so this would be um, east of the uh, Dead Sea, essentially, uh, slightly northwest of the, um, the desert Sinai. Okay? And so... Basically, the king's highway, which we'll see down in verse 17. So the request in verse 17, please let us pass through your land. We shall not pass through field or through vineyard. We shall not even drink water from a well. We shall go along the king's highway. King's highway. Well, the king's highway is a real thing. In fact, you can even go to wikipedia.com and you can look up the king's highway. The king's highway was a very well-known uh, route of travel between Egypt and Syria that ran out of Egypt and northeast into uh, the Negev and through the territory of Edom. It ran north on the east side of the River Jordan up into Syria. So um, uh, the King's Highway has actually been a, uh, a wonderful source of archaeological finds uh, over the many centuries uh, that date even back to well before the Israelites. And so the Israelites are well aware of this particular King's Highway. And um, they, are, they are saying to the Edomites, look, we're not going to walk through your vineyards Right? We're not going to uh, eat any of your food. We're not even going to drink any of your water. We'll stay on the path. We will uh, provide for ourselves. Simply let us traverse through your land. And the Edomites say no, not just once, but also twice. And so this begins now a, an ongoing feud. And of course, this feud has been going on since Jacob and Esau all the way back in Genesis. But this reinitiates this feud, this refusal of the Edomites to allow the Israelites to pass through the land of Edom, reignites a feud between the nation of Israel and the Edomites themselves. And as you continue to read through the Old Testament, this will spring up again and again. It'll spring up, for example, in Judges chapter 11. It will spring up in the, the, um, the kingdoms of Saul and David and Solomon. And it will actually spring up again multiple times in the prophets. Okay, And so, for example, you may not even be aware that there's an entire prophetic book that is dedicated to the Edomites. Now, it turns out that it's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. 
It's the book of Obadiah. It only has one chapter. But essentially, the entire book of Obadiah is a, an oracle of woe against the Edomites. And uh, there are some Jewish writings that declare that the reason why Obadiah was called by the Lord to um, declare a prophecy or an oracle of woe against the Edomites is because the Edomites were part of the plundering of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 and 586 BC. The Edomites came and participated in that plundering and cheered on the Babylonians even as the kingdom of Judah was being taken off into exile, into Babylonian exile. And so ultimately uh, that oracle of woe is pronounced by God through the prophet Obadiah against the nation of Edom Okay, for their um, participating in the plundering of Jerusalem. All right, and so that's a really long time, right? So here we are, uh, 40 years after the Exodus, so sometime in the 15th century BC, um, probably sometime near the end of the 15th century BC, and then you have that feud ongoing well into the 6th century uh, BC. And so. Uh, the better part of 800 years or so, this ongoing feud between the Israelites and the Edomites. Let's finish out the chapter, Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. This is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron. Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Mirabah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord Yahweh had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And after Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. So here uh, at the beginning of Numbers chapter 20, we have the death of Moses' older sister Miriam. And here at the end of Numbers chapter 20, we have the death of Moses' older brother Aaron. So there's a uh, actually three very significant things here in Numbers chapter 20 that occur in the life of Moses, the death of Miriam, and here the death of Aaron at the end. And we see this succession that's happening. Um, so the, the high priestly garments uh, that were Aaron's, which we studied all the way back in the, the middle portion of Exodus, are now stripped from Aaron as he is about to die and are given to his oldest living son, Eleazar, who will succeed him as the high priest. So Eleazar being the next in line of succession of what we would call the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. It's very interesting uh, because you can go to your favorite uh, map uh, app or you can go to your favorite um, map place on the internet and you can find Mount Hor and you can find there the tomb of Aaron. There's a monument on the top of Mount Hor uh, that denotes uh, supposedly uh, the place where Aaron 
died. And so uh, that is something that is not just lore, but it turns out that that's, that's history. And there is a monument on the top of Mount Hor dedicated to this particular event in Numbers chapter 20. All right. So I want to circle back to this uh, second event in Numbers chapter 20, the uh, waters uh, that came out of the rock at Mirabah. Um, a few things that we need to, to learn and understand from this particular event. So the first thing, I alluded to it earlier, but we see here finally in Numbers chapter 20 that Moses' anger um, finally catches up with him. Uh, we have seen, as I said, episodes of this previously. Um, Exodus chapter 16, verse 20. Exodus chapter 32, verse 19. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 16. Numbers chapter 16, verse 15. And now this fifth episode, at least of the ones that I could find with a quick search through the Pentateuch of um, events in Moses' life where he manifested his anger. And um, so I would just, uh, as a word of... Um, exhortation here, a word of reminder um, that uh, um, our anger eventually catches up with us. And so I was thinking just uh, driving home from work today about uh, how James uh, exhorts the church uh, to be slow to speak, right? Quick to listen and slow to anger. And um, it's not clear necessarily that James has Moses in mind, but, but clearly uh, Moses um, is a type of what James is speaking about there. Uh, and so um, if you struggle with anger, um, then this, let this be a warning to you that uh, your anger will catch up with you eventually. Number two, um, lessons from the waters at Mirabah. So the sins of leaders are especially grievous to God, especially if they are public, Right? Um, here, again, as I mentioned, we have seen episodes in the past where uh, Moses manifests uh, even unbelief back in Numbers chapter 11. Um, but this particular manifestation of Moses' disobedience and unbelief was very public. It was in the presence of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And uh, we just need to be reminded that um, these public sins of leaders um, are very grievous to God. Um, and um, I'm not going to name any names, but, but certainly uh, we know of, of uh, episodes even in the uh, 21st century church of uh, leaders uh, in the church whose sins um, have been especially heinous and especially public. Uh, and so um, I would just ask all of you on behalf of the elders of Abiding Grace Church that you would continue uh, to pray for us and to pray for the very public leaders uh, in the uh, visible church today um, that uh, the Lord would keep us from sin and cause us to persevere, to continue to rightly divide the word uh, and to live lives that are worthy of the calling that God has placed on our lives. And so I would thank you in advance for all of your intercessory prayers on our behalf. Lesson number three, and this is a very important point for the, um, the apologetic of the Bible or the defense of the Bible, the um, veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. 
I just want you to note here that in Numbers chapter 20, um, the, the honesty and integrity of the biblical writers, in this particular case Moses, to um, give a clear and accurate account of their own failings and their own shortcomings and their own sins. I mean, this is this is um, this is really an incredible thing when you think about it. And in many ways, we talk about it um, to to especially in the context of the New Testament, right? The gospel accounts themselves um, are um, rife with examples of the disciples' failings and shortcomings and and literally unbelief, right? So, for example, um, the gospel according to Mark. Um, is uh, historically understood, traditionally understood to be uh, Peter's gospel, um, and and you can just read through Mark and see um, the accounts in the gospel according to Mark of the times when Peter failed our Lord and Savior, his Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, um, and and the the reason why this is important is because it 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 more than lends a tone of credibility to the accounts, the historical accounts, right? I mean, if if somebody were trying to start a religion, if Peter were trying to start a religion and make himself famous, the last thing he would do in his gospel account, which we call the gospel according to Mark, is to tell you about all his failures and all of his shortcomings. But he does. And Moses does here in Numbers chapter 20. And why? Well, ultimately, the reason why Peter is able to be honest about his own shortcomings in the Gospel according to Mark, and the reason why Moses is able to be honest about his failures and his shortcomings here in Numbers chapter 20, is because ultimately this story is not about them. This story is about Yahweh and the New Testament. The story is about Jesus Christ. Jesus' perfection in stark contrast to those of sinners like us. And so this, from an apologetics standpoint, from a defense of the faith standpoint, from a defense of the veracity and integrity of the scriptures, this is a huge issue, and it's one that we ought to trumpet. And in many ways, this doesn't conflict with point number two, which is the sins of the leaders, they are especially grievous to God, right? But public confession of these types of things, our own failings, our own shortcomings, we don't do it very often, for example, from the pulpit of Abiding Grace Church, but I do think we do it reasonably. We, we are honest about our own failings, honest about our own shortcomings, because at the end of the day, we don't want anyone to look at us. We want people to turn their eyes upon Jesus. And so I would just give here number three as a word of encouragement to you to to build your your faith and your confidence in the veracity of the scriptures that we hold in our hands and that we study here week after week after week. The fourth and final point here um, is about the, the waters of Mirabah, especially here in Numbers chapter 20. As I just want to stress to you, the theological importance of Moses' exclusion from the promised land. This is a massively important theological event in redemptive history. 
Why? Well, to be honest with you, if you, we have to think about when we say the name Moses, especially those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, what does Moses represent? And you should all be saying to yourselves, Moses represents the law. And quite frankly, and that is true, you would be right. And quite frankly, there would be a much more massive theological problem with the idea if Moses went into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise, than the fact that he does not. Because we know, we know, that no one gets into the land of promise by the works of the law. And so we have to think about Moses as being representative of the law. And by keeping the works of the law, I think specifically of Galatians chapter 2, that no one will be saved by works of the law. And in fact, it took the lawgiver Moses to be excluded from the promised land. The law will never get us to the promises of God, but instead Moses has to die and be succeeded by one whose name is Joshua. Yahweh saves. And of course, as I preached a few months ago, Jesus is the Hellenized form of the name Joshua. And so the successor to Moses has to be the one who takes the people of God into the promises that God made to Abraham. And this is a type. Moses' death and the succession of Joshua as Moses' uh, successor and leader of the Israelites is a type of the salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have in the New Testament. I have talked to people who say that perhaps the consequences here given to Moses are harsh. After all that Moses has done for the Israelites over these 40 years, him being excluded from the promised land, is sometimes seen to be a harsh consequence for what Moses did here at the rock of Mirabah. And to that I would say two things. Number one, I don't believe Moses would say that. I believe Moses now understands that he was just a type of the law and that his exclusion from the promised land is actually a pointer for us to the gospel of God's glorious grace. The gospel, listen, the gospel of sola gratia, the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is magnified by Moses' exclusion from the promised land. And I believe Moses would bear witness to that as well. The second thing I would say is that we must remember that the rock, the rock that brings forth water, according to 1 Corinthians 10, is Christ. And back in Exodus 17, that rock was struck. And so the reason why God does not command Moses 
to strike the rock again in Numbers chapter 20 is because the rock, who is Christ, has, only, has already been struck once. He needs not be struck again, which is also a type of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was struck, he was smitten in Exodus chapter 17, and the water of salvation pours forth from him. You can read about that in the vision of Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48, how the waters flow forth from the temple of God, which is Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1, verse 14. And because he has already been struck, because already the waters have flown are flowing forth from him, in this particular case, he only needs to be spoken to. And his waters will come forth again. Okay? And so Moses actually here not only disobeys the command of God and does not treat God as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, but he also strikes the rock a second time, which is not a type of the once-for-all salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Okay? So massive theological implications here of Moses striking the rock at Mirabah in Numbers chapter 20. All of it, all of it pointing us to the once for all salvation that we have in and through Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. Okay, so that's what we have to remember in Numbers chapter 20. God bless.